This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Hi, my name's Charlie Post. I'm an editor of Spectre, the new Marxist journal, and I'd like to welcome all of you to our podcast, Race Webinar, excuse me, Race, Class, and Policing, the Racial <clears throat> the racial Economics of Mass Incarceration. Um, our two speakers today are Pete Eichler, who's a Associate Professor of Sociology at the State University of New York at Old Westbury, and Calvin John Smiley, who's an assistant professor at Hunter, which is part of the City University of New York. And before we kick this off, I just want to introduce those of you who may not be familiar with Spectre. Spectre is a new Marxist journal put out by a group of uh, people, all of whom are broadly within the, the tradition of revolutionary socialism from below. And one of our major tasks we've set for ourselves is recentering both exploitation and oppression in terms of the analysis of contemporary capitalism and an understanding of class and anti-oppression politics as crucial to a socialist project today. Today, Pete and Calvin John are going to be taught, uh, before I turn it over to them, one more thing. Many of you may not be aware, but no left-wing radical journal today can survive solely on subscription revenue. All the journals that are out today are subsidized in one way or another by wealthy individuals, foundations, or by the generous contributions of the people who find the journal an important contribution to their political and intellectual lives. Spectre's no exception. We don't yet have a wealthy benefactor and probably never will. Grants that support journals like our own are on hold because of the pandemic. So we're again asking our supporters to this time show Spectre some love. We've launched a fund driving, fundraising drive that begins began last Sunday on Valentine's Day and will conclude on March 8th, International Women's Day. The link is should be appearing at the bottom of the screen right now. And if you can, please subscribe. Any, any donation over $35 gets you a year's subscription. And, any, and all of your donations are tax deductible through, this, through the Center for Economic and Social Research. Please be as generous if you, as you can. If you find Spectre a useful contribution to the revival of a U.S. socialist left, please give generously in the next few weeks. So let me turn this over now to Pete and Calvin John. Hi. Uh, first of all, thank you, Charlie, Spectre, Haymarket Books, for sponsoring this event and for all those behind the scenes for making this event even possible. Pete and I really want to just extend our gratitude for that. Um, so to get started, um, 
published in 2010, The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness by Michelle Alexander sparked a national conversation about American jail and prison systems. Just two years previously, the United States made history electing Barack Obama, the first black president. While many saw this, saw his ascendancy to the highest position in the country as a shift in, in America, um, some even going on to say things such as that we were now post-racial, Alexander's book crushes that notion, rightly pointing out the disproportionate amount of black Americans inside the criminal justice system. Beyond simply the number of black people inside jails and prisons, Alexander points out the millions of people who are negatively impacted by the criminal justice system and their conviction, which creates collateral consequences post-incarceration from taking away employment opportunities, banned political participation, and social stigmas attached to being known as a quote-unquote felon. In sum, Alexander, using a critical race theory framework, argues, again convincingly, that the laws and policies enacted in the second half of the 20th century into the first decade of the 21st century systematically targeted specific demographics and populations, specifically low-income people of color, creating a racial caste system, or rather a racial underclass. In sum, a whole stratum of people who've been politically, economically, and socially disenfranchised in the United States, reminiscent of the late 19th and early 20th century policies known as Jim Crow. Unlike earlier forms of overt racism, the, late, the later policies were created with a covert colorblind racism that attempted to replace race with criminality to justify punishments. Alexander's work has sold well over a million copies, generating conversations from the family dinner table to national politicians having to reckon with America's problem of incarceration. While, while Alexander was far from the first to discuss this issue or address many of the consequences of incarceration, her work was able to capture a much broader audience. In the last 10 years, Alexander's work has received mostly positive praise with a whole new generation reading this book. Yet, like with all work, there have been detractors and critics of Alexander. Two of those critics are John Clegg and Adnan Usmani. Uz in their article entitled, The Economic Origins of Mass Incarceration, published by Catalyst in fall 2019, the pair attempt to correct what they believe Alexander work misses in what they deem as the quote-unquote standard story of mass incarceration. The duo take issue with the historical logic surrounding race, punishment, and policy and deliver a revisionist understanding of how America's unique position with carcerality, otherwise known as mass incarceration, occurred. When Clegg and Usmani's article was published, some pockets and circles of the left praised this as quote-unquote fresh look or a, fr or a fresh look on America's use of captivity. Moving away from this, again, quote-unquote, standard story, as they put it, they argue that mass incarceration simply occurs because of the lack of black absorption into the northern labor market and because of the rise of crime in the mid-20th century. Thus, cities and states simply responded uniformly but spontaneously the same by using punitive force and expanding jails and prison systems. Today, Pete Eichler and I will discuss our response article to Clegg and Usmani's work that was recently published in the Spectre Journal. We found several issues with their arguments stemming from inconsistent and unreliable methodology, revisionist and erasure of historical occurrences, and an incomplete analysis surrounding mass incarceration. And so now I will turn it over to my colleague, Pete Eichler. 
Cool. Thanks so much, Calvin. And thank you, Charlie. And thank you, Spectre and Haymarket for, uh, for organizing this uh, and for everybody for joining us today. Um, so uh, to, to start this off, I mean, obviously, this is mainly a critique. So the, the touching off point is, you know, the arguments that um, Clegg and Islani put forth in their article. And we're going to we're going to differ with those. Um, you know, so what I want to start with here is just laying out uh, six main claims that they put forward that we take issue with. And then we're going to sort of deconstruct um, the first of these six um, is that mass incarceration didn't really coincide with rising racial disparity. And therefore, it's not, in their words, not a racial control project because, as they claim, uh, racial disparity didn't go up in the carceral system at that time. They claim the war on drugs was not very important to um, the rise in imprisonment in America, um, which is a big contradiction with uh, what Alexander claims. We're going to argue that it actually was important. They also say that public punitiveness or the just public attitudes um, uh, across the American uh, um, body politic um, rose and that this was a simple reflection. This just basically was a, a, a coincident rise in changing attitudes with the rise in crime. They also claim that uh, U.S. imprisonment is largely a reflection of two other anomalies, two other exceptionalisms in the U.S. context. That is high crime and low welfare. We're going to challenge that claim as well. Uh, fifth, they um, come down um, sort of in a governmental structural view um, with the argument or with the, the thesis that federalism, the overarching structure of the federal government, um, provided a barrier, created a barrier to uh, redistributive solutions to the crime problem of the 60s and 70s, and therefore made it uh, all the more likely that a carceral uh, or punitive solution would be taken. Uh, we're going to argue that actually federalism didn't do this. Um, and last but not least, as Calvin already pointed out, uh, Clegg and Ismani make a, a very strong push to say that the underlying causes of crime, poverty, unemployment, which we would agree with that, Right, that those are the underlying sources of crime in an aggregate sense. But their claim is that why were those things so high, poverty, unemployment in the black community in the post-war period? Um, it's mainly due to inherited inherited disadvantage, uh, uh, lacking wealth, lacking uh, uh, sort of certifiable skills, et cetera, um, stemming from Jim Crow and slavery before that. And this was what caused uh, black poverty in that period, as well as bad timing. We're going to say there's a big part of the puzzle missing there. Um, and that's uh, active discrimination in housing and other areas. So, um, so let's start with some some visuals. Uh, we'll go to the next slide. Um, and these are mostly uh, these are graphs and and data that Clegg News Money themselves present. So this is their this is one of their key graphs that they provide to uh, to reinforce the claim uh, that they make that racial disparity did not rise uh, along with rising imprisonment. Um, as we can see here, however, uh, if you look at the bottom line, that's the uh, black to white uh, ratio of imprisonment, right? Um, it was already disproportionate um, prior to the 70s uh, and especially 80s rise in incarceration. Um, so there already was disparity, but then it sharply goes up in the 80s. We can see that sharpening uh, uh, tilt right there. Um, um, so that their own data effectively basically shows that disparity did rise um, um, racial disparity at the same time as millions of more people were being locked up. So that initial claim kind of falls flat. Um, if we go to the next slide, we can also see that even if we break that down by education level, sort of a disaggregated um, analysis of that, um, this is again, this is again, their chart, uh, uh, their graphic. 
um, that racial disparity is present in every single uh, educational breakdown group, right? People who don't have a high school certificate graduation uh, uh, or GED, there the disparity is highest. Obviously, we can see that there's a big gap between black and white imprisonment, um, but it's still there uh, among those with uh, just a high school degree. It's still there among those with some college, and it's even it's smaller, but it's even still there among those with a college degree. So throughout that period, um, and increasingly so, black people, even with more education, were still more likely to be locked up uh, than white people. Um, and this really just goes to um, uh, actually reinforces the claim that racial control was uh, perhaps part of this project in the first place. We would also challenge the idea that a racial control project needs to be indicated by rising disparity, right? If rising, if disparity already exists in some institution, um, simply expanding that institution without even adding more disparity might also constitute uh, racial control, um, which is something that the original authors don't, uh, don't, don't deal with. So that's one of the first claims, right? That mass incarceration did not have anything to do with rising racial disparity. It clearly did. Um, let's move on to uh, the next slide, the next set of claims. Um, uh, this slide actually doesn't uh, deal with that, so I'm just, I'm just going to talk about it. Um, one point that is sort of uh, key to Clegg and uh, argument here is that the war on drugs didn't really matter uh, to rising incarceration. So they basically point to 2019 stats that say that 21% of current prisoners, federal and state prisons, um, are in for drug crimes, right? So 21%, that's a little bit more than a fifth, right? And they sort of make a quick move to say that that is not a very large number, right, or a large proportion. Uh, it's clearly not the majority. Um, and therefore, uh, based on 2019 data, um, you know, drug crimes are not accounting for the majority of uh, uh, people currently in prison. That is true as far as it goes. Um, however, we would point out just on the face of it that 21% is actually more than the number of prisoners in, in the same year for property crimes. That was 17%. Um, and that it uh, doesn't take into account uh, a key mechanism of how imprisonment happens, right? How people end up in jail, uh, end up locked up, um, and and that they actually acknowledge elsewhere that this distinction exists. So what we're talking about here is the distinction between stock versus flow of prisoners. Right? Stock is prisoners at any given time and what they're in for. Flow is why are what are the convictions bringing people into and then out of prison, right? And how long are they staying, etc. So drug crime prisoners typically don't spend as long in prison as violent crime prisoners, right? Um, but over that same period. The, the sort of peak of the prison boom from 1993 to 2007 or 2009, actually, um, Jonathan Rothwell is an author that we cite, uh, finds using reputable data that uh, actually drug crimes uh, accounted for the plurality, the largest single portion of new imprisonment over that period. We could also take into account, which Clegg's money don't, um, the fact of recidivism, right? A lot, unfortunately, of very, the majority of people who go to prison will end up back in prison within a five-year span of leaving prison, right? And that's two-thirds for all prisoners, and that's three-quarters for drug crime prisoners. So it doesn't take too much of a leap to look at the data and say, okay, a plurality or 31% going into jail first time or a time for drug crimes. Many of them will leave and most likely, uh, unfortunately, get locked up again, even if it's not for a drug crime the second time, right? But imprisonment generates more imprisonment. Um, so there's a, there's a clear uh, mechanism by which drug crime prosecution, 
uh, and imprisonment can drive rising incarceration rent, uh, uh, rates over that same period, which is something that the authors don't uh, don't deal with. Um, so there's that. Let's move on to the third one. Uh, the idea that public punitiveness um, uh, was just rising in line with rising crime, right? It's just a fl- reflection of that. Um, and that's there's there's something on the surface of it that's true, right? These these arcs. This is again one of Clegane's graphs uh, that shows the black and the white. Uh, punitiveness or attitudes that are pro-incarceration or pro, uh, uh, pro-policing pro um, over the uh, uh, the period in question. And that does largely correlate with the same rise and fall of, of the crime rate. However, we can point to the fact that there's obviously a persistent and significant racial gap um, in these attitudes, right? White people overall are more punitive and their mountain or their, their, their hill here climbs more steeply and earlier. Right. Uh, um, much more so than uh, the black uh, attitude curve. Um, and the strange thing here is that actually black people were those who were being much more exposed to crime and actually increasingly so over this time period. Yet throughout the time, their uh, you know punitive attitudes actually remain remain lower. So it's something of an ecological fallacy to look at the general picture of rising punitiveness um, and say, aha, it was crime that was causing that when the people who were less exposed to crime were more punitive and earlier uh, uh, so throughout the period. Um, So that attitudinal claim also kind of falls flat. Uh, We got a fourth claim that we're going to take issue with, uh, and that is this. It's a little more complicated. Uh, It's got a couple. um, It's got three dimensions to it. the first of which is, of course, high imprisonment. We're going to talk about this in a second and show some more data on that, but that the U.S. is really just off the charts in terms of how many people it locks up as a part of its portion of its population. The other two exceptionalisms that Clegg and Zvani claim this is a reflection of or t- closely tied to are relatively low welfare provisioning uh, in the U.S. Um, and, um, uh, um, excuse me, um, oh, and high U.S. crime. Right. Just a high crime rate it was also uh, off the normal spectrum and low welfare provision. And you take those two things together and that sort of generates um, a higher uh, imprisonment rate. So here again are two graphs, uh, you know, data visuals from Clegg News Money. Um, and they show, you know, the U.S. that's kind of at the bottom of the pack, near the bottom of the pack in some, uh, you know, you know, rich country baskets in terms of how much they give out in terms of welfare, social transfers as a percent of GDP, um, or penal spending as a proportion of um, uh, social spending or as a share of that. Um, but these are not, you know, qualitative leaps here, right? The U.S. is just a little bit more penal than social than Switzerland and Spain, right? You can see it's just a few notches below. Uh, on the social transfers things, it's actually not the not not at the bottom of its of this uh, relative pack. Um, so, okay, not terribly surprising. The U.S. is kind of stingy, right, in terms of its welfare provisioning um, and what it does for people in a redistributive aspect. If we go to the next visual, however, we can take a look at the incarceration rates. Um, these are uh, 2018 per, per 100,000 population rates. We have the U.S. far over on the right side, and it is just towering over every other uh, peer economic country um, that we can find. And actually, it even towers over some not-so-peer economic countries like Brazil, Russia, and China, um, or Iran, for that matter. The U.S. has a higher incarceration rate than 
uh, in that year and actually in most years than any peer country by a huge order of magnitude, right? Um, it's a false equivalency to say, okay, a little stingy in welfare, therefore more punitive in incarceration when one is this high and the other one is, you know, a little bit uh, below average. Um, so that, again, that equivalency or that idea that it's just a trade-off between low welfare, high crime, uh, and, and high imprisonment doesn't really uh, pan out. Um, but what about high crime, right? So maybe there's the claim that, you know, the U.S. has just been uh, uh, more ridden by criminal behavior in the late, in the mid to late 20th century, and therefore there's been more imprisonment. Um, and this is also a, a claim that Clegg and his money sort of go in for and endorse, which we would say is strange because uh, they cite a book um, by uh, Franklin Zimmering and Gordon Hawkins called Crime is Not the Problem, Lethal Violence in America, that painstakingly, empirically deconstructs the idea that the U.S. has had an exceptional crime wave in the late to mid 20th century. Um, it actually has not. What they find is different about the U.S. crime statistics is that they've been more violent, right, which they largely attribute to the widespread availability of firearms. So Violent crimes um, uh, or uh, that have been committed in other countries may not be as deadly because they're often less often committed with uh, firearms or high capacity firearms. And they may end up as being more deadly in the U.S. because of that availability. Um, but the underlying trend in many advanced capitalist countries over the same period was largely the same. So if there's not a really anomalous crime wave in the U.S. compared to some of these other countries, that also doesn't explain the disproportional uh, imprisonment rate that is there. Um, so there's four claims that we think don't really add up uh, in their argument. The fifth one that they put forward is this idea that federalism, the structure of U.S. national government, um, uh, is a barrier to uh, redistributive solutions to the crime problem. Um, and this is kind of interesting because they made the claim that, you know, states and localities had could do little else, right, than lock people up when confronted with, when trying to deal with the crime problem. Um, however, this actually goes against what federalism is, right? Federalism compared to unitary systems, such as in France, um, gives the subordinate units, states in this case, um, more leeway, more power to... Uh, to deal with problems, to raise revenue, to spend as they see fit, et cetera, um, then, for example, uh, provinces in France or other unitary systems. Um, so it actually provides the inverse. Uh, federalism seems to actually make it more possible, give more leeway for states to find other solutions to the crime problem uh, or other problems um, than uh, other systems might, uh, might provide. So it also doesn't really stand up as a good explanation for why um, the U.S. decided to lock up so many people, especially black and brown people. Um, last but not least, uh, Clegg and Usmani repeatedly state things to the effect that um, after the Great Migration, Black people migrating from the rural South uh, into the northern cities and also some southern cities um, had trouble finding jobs, uh, had trouble uh, buying houses, had trouble accumulating wealth. And most of that, in their view, was just attributed to past economic deficits. Right? They came poor. They came with few certifiable skills. Therefore, that just sort of reproduced itself. Um, what this doesn't do, however, is take account for the very, very well-documented uh, and very impactful uh, role of active incarceration that was going on uh, uh, throughout um, the post-war period. Right? Black people were systematically, through multiple processes, denied access to housing or to 
property ownership in the suburbs, which were booming during that period. And many of the jobs and good educational opportunities were going with those that suburban spread right, and draining inner cities of, uh, of wealth, services uh, and jobs. Um, and so it was not just a race blind process, right? It just happened to be that some folks had less money uh, and less wealth and less skills. Um, and they just couldn't get these things. They were actively being excluded from that on the basis of race. Um, and this is not, you know, this is, this is not some held secret. This is a, a well understood uh, fact and process in American social science. So those six claims that they present to us as reasons why the U.S. decided to lock up so many people um, don't really hold up and they don't defeat Alexander's argument as their intended to do. Um, and Calvin's going to go a little deeper into the history there. So I'll turn it back over to him. Thanks, Pete. So um, if we go to the next slide here, um, one of the sections that we talk about in our article is this timeline of black oppression, um, which is something that we find that Kleggner's money kind of failed to really capture when they're trying to make this sweeping claim. And so when we look at the history of America's relationship with people of African descent, it's a uh, really unique uh, in comparison to any other non-Indigenous population um, to the Americas, as Black people have been held in uh, various institutions of captivity, which has exploited labor amongst other aspects of Black life. And so, as we, uh, I'm sure many people know on this, uh, on, this Zoom, uh, on this Skype, that uh, Black people were seen as both docile and treated with high levels of paternalism during slavery because they were held as chattel or property. Um, Post-slavery, uh, one thing that um, often gets uh, swept over is the issue of convict leasing, which really ran parallel with the Jim Crow system, where we see the rise in what becomes known as the criminalization of blackness, where black people go from being seen as docile to uh, brutal, right? This idea, if we think back to films like Birth of a Nation, et cetera. And this is something that uh, Clegg and Usmani, again, failed to address, uh, uh, explicitly address. And they write in their article, quote, most of the growth in the ratio of black to white incarceration occurred in the earlier period of American history, 1880 to 1970, after the end of slavery during the first great migration. So while they acknowledge it, they simultaneously downplay the significance of this period. Um, I always like to turn to... Um, the great Amer African-American historian and, and sociologist uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, who writes in his book, Black Reconstruction, and he writes this in 1935, quote, this penitentiary system became to characterize the whole South. In Georgia, at the outbreak of the Civil War, there were about 200 white felons confined at Midgeville Prison. There were no Negro convicts, since under the discipline of slavery, Negroes were punished on the plantation. The white convicts were released to fight in the Confederate armies. The whole criminal justice system came to be used as a method of keeping Negroes at work and intimidating them. Consequently, there began to demand there began to be a demand for jails and penitentiaries beyond the natural demand. Right? This is something that the boys are seeing um, in 1935. So it's during this Jim Crow era, black people went from again. Uh, slaves to convicts, and the status change was almost entirely in name alone. As many people are probably familiar with, the 13th Amendment, which granted emancipation and abolished slavery, also had this captivity loophole, as it's written, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as punishment for crime where the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist in the United States or any place subject of their jurisdiction. So historians and other scholars have articulated how Convicted persons suffered harsher, unsanitary, and violent work conditions during the convict lease era. 
In this instance, it could even be argued that black life was valued less under this period than during slavery, as slaves held an intrinsic value to their enslaver versus convict leasing, where the priority was focused on the materials procured, not the laborer, who if fell ill or died, was simply replaced uh, by a new convict. And then if you look at the bottom with mass incarceration, which kind of brings us to present, anyone who can look at the timeline and realize that both slavery and convict leasing were not far removed from modern day incarceration. And in the 21st century, American jails and prisons have peaked around 2.3 million people, disproportionately, again, impacting black Americans. So anyone trying to make the claim that these earlier systems of confinement do not have direct linkages to current forms of incapacitation is either untrained or is consciously dismissing American history. Even today, we see overlap between past and present systems of slavery, convict, and mass incarceration, particularly in the form of prison camps throughout the South that not only feel or look like a plantation, um, but in fact are built on former plantations, such as the Ramsey Unit in Texas, the Cummings Unit in Arkansas, and the notorious Louisiana State Prison, more commonly referred to as Angola which still produces vegetables and meats for public consumption and holds an annual event such as the prison rodeo, which puts incarcerated individuals in the spotlight for the purposes of entertainment and generating income for the prison. Next slide, please. Another area that we really wanted to um, focus on was how uh, crime and urban rebellions really uh, were an important um, uh, uh, point in this in this time period, something, again, that Clegg and Usmani don't really take the time to focus on. And so coming out of World War II, Black, and Black Americans had this renewed effort in gaining equal access uh, within American society. In various events in the early to mid-1950s, such as the landmark Supreme Court decision of Brown v. Board of Education, the murder of Emmett Till, and the Montgomery bus boycott, sparked what is now known as the 20th century civil rights movement. Additional movements such as the environmental justice movement and the Black Power movement were either directly or indirectly born out of this larger movement for equal rights. And throughout this time period, various urban uh, uprisings occurred in American cities. In July 1967, Newark, New Jersey and Detroit, Michigan both erupted, becoming the second and the first most destructive uprisings in terms of loss of life and property damage, respectively. And these, along with others, which became known as race riots, had a lot of, uh, excuse me, had one common denominator, which is a link to poverty, institutional discrimination, and, and police brutality. In Newark and Detroit, both riots were sparked by police brutality of black residents. President Lyndon Johnson commissioned a report, uh, which was uh, to help us understand these race riots. And in 1968, the Kerner Commission was released. And one of the most important sentences from that final report reads, uh, our nation is moving uh, to uh, our nation is moving towards two societies, one black, one white, separate and unequal. This re uh, report recognized failed institutional policy supporting uh, investments in housing, education, and healthcare. Yet the United States, in particular politicians of the time period, failed to incorporate many of the policy recommendations and instead invested billions of dollars into ballooning the prison system. Furthermore, we see issues around the quote-unquote law and order rhetoric which was uh, uh, popularized during the mid-1960s by people such as Barry Goldwater and then later on Richard Nixon. But 
we know uh, through uh, accounts and instances of police brutality that used aggressive police tactics early on in the civil rights movement uh, were, uh, in fact, putting law and order into practice. For example, in 1961, members of the Albany movement in Georgia were met with mass arrest and charges of uh, disturbing the peace uh, by police chief Lori Pritchett, who earned establishment praise for using detention. Once again, today, we have heard renewed vows of law and order in response to Black Lives Matter, a social movement that actively seeks to end police brutality. The consistent thread here is Black resistance is met with unwavering backlash by armed state agencies such as local, state, and federal police. Recently, the film, uh, the recently released film, Judas and the Black Messiah, explores the life of Black Panther leader Chairman Fred Hampton of the Illinois chapter. The film highlights the active role the FBI under J. Edgar Hoover had in eliminating Hampton by using informants and other nefarious tactics, culminating in the murder of Hampton and Mark Clark while they slept. Hampton, who had a deeply keen sense of class consciousness, who organized whites, Latinx, and black organizations, and had started the original Rainbow Coalition. While the film does a good job in retelling this story, there is literally an abundance of information surrounding government's illegal strategies known as COINTELPRO. Political prisoner Mumia Abu-Jamal and Professor Joanna Fernandez trace much of that history in their article, Punishing the Poor, the Roots of Mass Incarceration in the U.S., where they highlight the various leaders, organizations, and movements targeted by the government. So Clegg and Usmani want readers to believe that simply because crime rose in the 1960s, mass incarceration just so happened to be the government's only response. We would be naive in selling ourselves short to think that one of the most powerful and wealthy nations could not think of alternative po uh, policies to respond to the rise in crime. Rather than believe their historical revisionism, we should look to the longer history of American suppression of progressive movements and understand that crime rise had to do with a multitude of factors, including government agencies sparking inner city violence. The discovery of COINTELPRO highlighted the government's involvement in such uh, cases like agents distributing bogus letters to gang to gang leaders to provoke street wars. Um, and then finally, if you can go to the to the to the next slide, the war on drugs is a is something that Clegg and Usmani take task with. And as Pete has already pointed out, they really try to minimize minimize what the war on drugs uh, uh, did. And so, one thing that we try to um, argue here is that the war on drugs is not simply about locking up people who have been uh, in possession or in use. Uh, or even distribution of uh, illegal narcotics. But the war on drugs created a culture of punishment, retribution, and incentives for law enforcement. Uh, Clegg and Usmani want readers to believe that Alexander, uh, in effect, made a bigger deal out of the war, uh, war on drugs. But once again, we find that these authors either are not well-versed in this literature or actively dismiss the scholarship in order to fabricate their own claims. Alexander right, rightly points out the war on drugs develops a cultural response towards criminal justice that embraces high rates of punitive and retributive policies. It is during this time period that across American states and the federal government, we see the embrace of mandatory minimum sentences, the restrikes laws, truth and sentencing policy, bringing back the, uh, the use of capital punishment, the growth in using solitary confinement in our prisons, the issuing of military-grade gear and weaponry for police officers, uh, the growth in the use of uh, special forces such as SWAT and vice squads, and the use of civil for for forfeiture amongst other issues. 
Here we understand the war on drugs is not simply about drug use, but as an all-encompassing reactionary movement which following earlier historical time periods in American history, uses racial groups as the proverbial boogeyman to create drug laws. While drug sentencing disparities by race and overall sentencing for drug possession are shrinking, there is still racial disparities surrounding prosecution and imprisonment, which cannot be ignored. And with that, I'll turn it back to Pete. Cool. Thank you, Calvin. Um, so to kind of sort of bring things to a conclusion, we got one more critique point that we want to raise uh, and then sort of the outlines of uh, building up a, a better theory um, that integrates race and class and trying to explain U.S. mass incarceration. So the last critique point that we want to raise with Clegg and Mismani's argument is the fact that although they're presenting what they call an economic analysis or what they want to call the economic origins of mass incarceration, um, it's sort of a a big deficit that they don't actually talk about a major economic shift that happened right at the time that they're examining and right coterminous with the boom in incarceration. And that of course is neoliberalism. Uh, what others have called the great U-turn uh, what others have called uh, the new, the birth of the new gilded age, right? It's got a bunch of names, but there's a very demonstrable, you know, empirically verifiable and obvious turn in sort of the governmental approach to uh, the economy and also in businesses approach to trying to crush unions, uh, trying to find uh, uh, alternate sources of, um, uh, of labor power um, uh, uh, and global networking. Um, and uh, so that occurs, the neoliberal turn starting in the late 70s and really picks up steam in the 80s and continues into the 90s. And some would say we're still in it, even if it's in crisis. Um, so what we're presented in Clegg and Usmani's argument is essentially uh, a series of social processes that were happening during what we might call the, you know, the post-war boom or the Fordist period or whatever, you know, that period pre-neoliberalism, but post-World War II. Um, and they set in motion for them, a process of locking up lots of people um, who just so happen to disproportionately be people of color. Um, and that just continues, right? There's actually no mention of the huge shift in sort of uh, uh, turn the wheel uh, in economic and governmental sphere. Um, and this, I think, provides us a sort of very simplistic notion of how history and historical causation work. We might call it the billiard ball model of change or of causation, right? One thing happens, causes thing, thing B to happen. Um, but actually, it was all sort of changing together. Um, and there's a number of uh, researchers um, uh, um, and analysts who would point to and have you know, documented a pretty close connection between both the sort of punitive uh, uh, market marketization uh, neoliberal turn in, in governmentality and the punitive turn uh, in response to crime or so-called crime um, uh, or exaggerated things that became codified as crime, such as uh, uh, free-based cocaine possession, et cetera. Um, so uh, that is an interesting, it's just sort of a strange oversight that you'd think some, someone or some authors coming up with an economic analysis of this event would want to, of this process, would want to incorporate that, which they don't. Um, and of course, the neoliberal turn itself also had a huge racial dimension to it, too. It was explicitly the, the term dog whistle racism comes from, you know, uh, well, pre pre Reagan, but uh, was definitely bolstered by Reagan's uh, calling out of the so-called welfare queens who were everyone understood to be people of color. Um, and that was one of the main political justifications for gutting welfare and deregulating corporations and uh, and on and on and on. Um, so there's intimate connections there that are just really uh, glossed over by those authors. Uh, 
So what would it look like to try and build up um, a theory of mass incarceration in the U.S. or an explanation for it, at least, um, that doesn't sort of fall into these uh, uh, fall into these uh, uh, traps? And our view is that um, Michelle Alexander provides a sort of very solid, very the bulk of the explanation we need for that in terms of the political processes, in terms of the dynamics between uh, social movements and right wing reaction. Um, uh, and what we want to sort of build upon there and introduce to that are some economic uh, uh, trends and processes that we think are also sort of outlined in, in basic form by um, uh, by some sort of um, fundamental Marxist theories and Marxist ideas, such as the uh, general law of accumulation, right? Um, which we don't have to go into all the detail here. We provide some of that in the article. Uh, um, but we do want to take a look at just the overall trends in employment or labor force participation. Um, and there we can see this multicolored graph that we present um, that comes from BLS data uh, and shows, you know, the whole body, everybody who's in the labor force or not, that, that that's the middle blue line. It shows men, white men, black men, Women, all women, white women, black women, right? These different arches, different different curves that are there uh, uh, on the chart. Um, and what we see there is rising labor force participation for women uh, up until about the late 90s, and it plateaued and actually goes down again, declining for men, both black men and white men, throughout the entire period uh, that we see uh, uh, provided to us there. This, you know, doesn't confirm, but it at least is entirely consistent with Marx's. Uh, general law of accumulation, which says that as capitalists accumulate wealth uh, and, and firms conglomerate and um, um, form together, that this ultimately ultimately leads towards um, an increase um, in uh, relative unemployment, right? Both the uh, uh, the stagnant uh, and floating layers of unemployment, right? Which, uh, or the labor surplus, as he calls it. Um, so, we don't. We can't go entirely into all the ins and outs of that. It's here. We look forward to it in the in the discussion, and we also uh, point to it in the article. But if we want to go to the very last slide uh, and start to build up this sort of building blocks of an integrated theory that looks at uh, uh, the rise of mass incarceration from both a racial and a class lens and puts them together as part of a um, co-constituent totality, we can outline the following sort of claims. Right? Number one. Right. I don't think this is terribly controversial. The idea that racial divisions were constructed in the U.S. context prior to industrial capitalism and long maintained outside of that. Right. Slavery first and then debt peonage sharecropping. Right. Where agricultural forms of racialized bondage and subordination and uh, uh, surplus extraction that were largely happening outside of capitalism or capitalism proper, uh, uh, as we might um, understand it. The Great Migration then. Um, happens over a period of time, right, where many black folks leave the rural South, um, fleeing uh, basically uh, white vigilante terror um, uh, um, and also the increasing mechanization of agriculture um, uh, decreased the need for, for so many people working in agriculture. Um, and this process integrates um, black people in the U.S., into the labor pool or into becoming wage workers or would-be wage workers uh, in cities in the North, et cetera. Now, this happens, of course, step three, at the same time as industrial growth uh, is slowing, right, especially after the Second World War, um, and, uh, and also migrating outwards from uh, uh, central cities into suburbs um, and part, part of it to other, uh, to more even more rural areas, um, and active discrimination that we've already pointed to in housing, in employment, in education, in other areas, which 
the civil rights movement and the black power movements explicitly try to combat. The 70s, however, of course, brings a sharper industrial decline, more generalized unemployment, which is disproportionately black, given the things that we pointed to before. Um, and this sets the stage for political intervention of some sort, right? Um, it's a crisis, a multi, uh, um, multifarious crisis that calls for some kind of political intervention. And we believe that Michelle Alexander provides um, a, a robust explanation for why that intervention took the form that it did, why that political intervention took the form of carceral repression aimed at black and brown people um, rather than some redistributive politics uh, uh, that, um, you know, um, would not have taken a punitive turn, which we did not see in other advanced capitalist countries over that period. Um, what she leaves unexamined, or which, what are sort of outside of her uh, uh, purview um, in the new Jim Crow, are sort of the economic dimensions um, that we've uh, attempted to point to here. The racialization of unemployment, right, that happened in the post-war period. Right, and that Calvin outlined uh, in great detail, combined with uh, the class dynamics of neoliberalism, basically a general assault on the working class at the hands of a new uh, uh, sort of mobilized business class um, and complicit or proactive uh, uh, government elites, and of course the long-term um, industrial decline uh, that went along with that period and accelerated in the 70s and 80s, um, that these forces overdetermined that the carceral repressive answer was going to be the one chosen. Um, they didn't predetermine it, but they made it much more likely that that would be the choice taken uh, by the actors involved than a redistributive politics. So what this adds up to, uh, in our view, is that mass incarceration is a racialized class control project, right? It's a project that aims to control the increasingly, from capital's viewpoint, surplus layers of the working class, which are disproportionately black and brown, um, due to the processes that, have, that we've outlined. Um, and it becomes in effect a, pro a, a project of repressing and dealing with uh, uh, the surplus labor that neoliberal, neoliberal capitalism uh, could not productively employ, which turned out uh, in the system that we live in, in the US, uh, to be, of course, disproportionately people of color. Um, so we wanna thank everybody for coming out and we definitely look forward to a lively discussion. Thank you very much. This was an excellent presentation. And I think it's already, I, from what I can see from the chat box that I've been sending to generating some questions. But what I'd like to sort of kick it off. And you've begun to talk about what the limits of Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow are. The fact that it didn't situate mass incarceration in the development of capitalism, growth of a reserve army, the racial reconfiguration of the reserve army and surplus populations after the Second World War, so that it was no longer predominantly, as it had been in the 19th and early 20th century, Southern and Eastern European immigrants who were disproportionately in the reserve army, and the surplus populations is increasingly African-Americans, Latinx people, etc. The crisis that begins in the 70s, it's the neoliberal response, the inability of the left, the black struggle, the working, cl working class struggles to pose a different path out of that. Now, how do you think this is the, 
I want to sort of bring for to to kick off the discussion, bring this down to the the political import of this discussion, because for many many years now, and we saw this very very shortly this summer, with the mass anti anti racist uprising, possibly the largest social movement in terms of you know numbers of participants that we've seen maybe since the CIO. The left in the US, liberal and socialist, have often polarized between two positions. One is what can be called a liberal identitarian politics, the politics of the Democratic Party, which says, yes, race is, we can address racial disparities without touching and without addressing underlying dynamics of capitalism and class inequality and exploitation. And on the other hand, we get people who are saying, and this is unfortunately a, a considerable port, a layer of the new socialist movement, is saying, no, all of these demands that take up and highlight racial oppression and racial disparity are a diversion. What we need is a unified working class movement that is, you know, uni unites around so-called universal demands. Expansion of the welfare state, particularly of, of health insurance, free college education, et cetera. How does the perspective you're bringing attempt to, how does that allow us to begin to politically transcend this rather sterile debate between using a shorthand liberal identity politics and class reductionism. Uh, I guess I'll take a, a first stab at it and then I'll let Pete uh, go to it. And I appreciate the question. Um, you know, one of the first things that I think is really important to highlight is that Michelle Alexander is a legal scholar and she's using a critical race theory, theoretical lens. Um, and I think, I think she does, and I'll speak for me here, I think she does actually a relatively good job in marrying the race class debate. And again, and I agree with Pete and we wrote this article that says it can be expanded upon. But again, she talks about throughout the book, this idea of a racial caste system, right? She's, she's marrying the idea that the prison boom creates an economic condition for disproportionately people of color, specifically black people, that they then they they cannot get out of. And, you know, uh, I was I was going through the book again and I was just plucking out some some quotes that she writes and stuff. And, you know, right in the in the preface, she says, last but definitely not least, I'm writing this book for all those trapped within the latest caste system. You may be locked up or locked out of mainstream society, but you were not forgotten. She doesn't say I'm writing this just for black people. A little bit later on, she even makes um, she even makes a point to, to say when there's a critique of well, what about the Barack Obama or, or Oprah Winfrey, Oprah Winfrey's. She says that the fact that some African-Americans have experienced great success in recent years does not mean uh, that it's something akin to racial caste system that no longer exists. No caste system in the United States has ever governed all black people. There's always been, quote unquote, free blacks in the black success stories, et cetera. So she's 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 acknowledging that this has a racial and economic class condition. 
the second point I'll make to the to the reserve army point is that this is also somewhat uniquely different than that because when someone comes out of prison and has a felony they are completely locked out of the economic, social, and political system. So it's almost like they're not even part of the reserve army. There's something else. And that's something that, you know, might need to get, uh, be explored. And then the last point I'll make on this is, um, we don't have to have the liberal, is this the liberal identity politics or is this kind of the, the, the leftist, uh, class reductionist? I just encourage everyone to read, you know, Kimberly Crenshaw, uh, Patricia Hill Collins, Bell Hooks. I mean, you know, black feminism, intersectionality is the marrying of these different um, arguments into kind of an uh, overlapping uh, um, theoretical framework, which, again, is born out of critical race theory, which I think um, Michelle Alexander does a good job. So I'll stop there and I'll let Pete, uh, if he has anything to this. Yeah, just add a little bit to the sort of like political, what do we do with this question that Charlie raised? So I think, you know, I think, Charlie, you're absolutely right. What we get in uh, the Clegg News Money article, and, you know, they're not alone in this, right? There's a, a sort of cadre or a wing of people in some publications, um, you know, associated with DSA, not exclusively, that sort of presents us with, again, this other false dichotomy. Right? Either you're going to get class, quote unquote, class wide demands that don't really pay attention to race or gender or other important you know, uh, uh, dimensions of any of inequality and oppression. Uh, class-wide demands like Medicare for all, free college, uh, raising the minimum wage, um, you know, making it easier for unions to organize, etc. All of which are good things, right? No one's like dismissing those things. Those are bad. It's a waste of time. Except for a lot of the liberal Democratic Party leadership, right? Um, uh, that promote basically sort of uses race and gender divisions in an identitarian way to say like those things are a waste of time. What we just need to do is diversify the boards of uh, you know, uh, in health insurance companies and corporations and, you know, uh, and, and also, um, you know, diversify the police, right? Make the police more racially representative, et cetera. And that should take care of these problems. Um, we've seen clearly that that doesn't solve what that does. Is those, that approach, that's the liberal approach, the sort of liberal identity politics leaves the structures of capitalism, the inequality in the economic and institutional spheres intact and just says, well, if we um, provide more opportunity um, uh, and we diversify the sort of leadership of these organizations, uh, that will make it less bad, right? And sort of solve some of those problems. We've seen, of course, and Michelle Alexander already points to this, you know, already back more than a decade ago, that just diversifying police or diversifying, you know, uh, prison guards or even diversifying the judiciary doesn't solve those problems, right? It doesn't. It doesn't make. Uh, the pol- you know policing systems and incarceration less racist, right? Um, uh, they those individuals who find themselves in those powerful positions often get wrapped up in uh, uh, in those overarching uh, processes and norms. Um, so that's not the solution. However, a left that or a, a would be left that wants to dismiss and put down and basically sideline um, the sorry, there's no other word to, to frame it here, but the vanguard of struggle in the U.S. social system, right, which is right now uh, black and brown youth who are coming out and saying, you know, enough with police repression. Let's defund the police. Let's abolish the police. Um, this is the cutting edge of resistance to a decrepit uh, neoliberal capitalism in the U.S. It's expressed in uh, a, a sort of a racial form or race first form. Right. But that is that is where that is where struggle is. Um, and it poses bigger questions about the state. Um, that you know need to be extrapolated on the left. So what we need, I would say, politically, is a left that um, 
can do both at the same time. That can be part of uh, and centering demands for racial justice um, and into the police and into racist policing and mass incarceration. Um, at the same time as advancing demands that will also uh, 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 increase the, the conditions and increase the, increase the standard of life and increase the societal power of working class people of, of any background. So uh, that's what we're trying to do here. Let me throw a qu- uh, one of the questions that we're getting from our fate, our, uh, YouTube feed uh, to you, which sort of parallels this. How does this debate and how did the, the theoretical and, ad- and historical debate impact very concretely on the debate that you both uh, alluded to about defunding the police, which interestingly enough, both the liberal identitarians in the Democratic Party and the class reductionists around certain layers of DSA, certain people running for Jacobin, Catalyst, et cetera, both reject the notion of defunding the police. So if you can talk about how the debate on policing, mass incarceration, criminalization impacts this debate on defunding the cops. Go ahead, Pete. Um, I think it's a great point to bring up, right? So here's a, here's a place where allegedly the the you know people on the opposite side of the spectrum or people who are taking different stands actually find themselves on the same side for a second, right? You know, maintaining funding for the police, right? Or there was an article by Dustin Gastella, um, not in Jacobin, but in another publication last summer that basically made this argument: don't defund the police; it'll lead to more death, right? Using faulty statistics. Um, it was a, a non site. In nonsense, it's right. uh, website. Right. right. Um, so there's a lot of problems with that. I mean, again, it presents us with this flat, you know, picture as if calls to defund the police are just saying defund the police and don't do anything else. Let's keep the rest of the status quo intact and just shrink the the dollar amounts going to the cops compared to other, you know, expenditure sites. Um, that's not what anybody is saying. And as a matter of fact, you know, umpteen, uh, uh, you know, public figures, movement leaders uh, uh, have said quite the opposite. We need to defund the police and we need to increase funding for social services and education um, and maybe even something like an industrial program to actually bring, bring and create jobs uh, in impoverished communities, right? In almost every context where someone's saying defund or abolish the police, they're also saying and fighting for these other, you know, positive demands, other places to put the funding. Um so I think it's just important to recognize that and to to not be presented or not be content with these, these sort of straw man presentations that are often uh, often posed to us. Right? We can we can walk and chew gum at the same time, I think. Yeah. And I'll just piggyback off of what Pete said. Right. I mean, you know, it is it's a it's a divest reinvest movement. That's that's really what the defund the police movement boils down to. And it's also about capturing what that what, what the meaning of defund the police means. Um, it's not a. Um, today there's police, tomorrow there's no police either, right? It's it, it's a long-term goal with investment into these other social programs and social services that would be response uh, responsive to a whole stratum of of, of, of needs in in society. Um, and there's been a lot of uh, you know stuff written about um, you know just adding housing, you know, for, for folks, you know, you know, greatly diminishes the need for uh, police in terms of responses and, you know, uh, budgets in terms of city and municipalities for overnight stays in jail and things like that. So we know that this is definitely a movement um, that is not out of the realm of possibility. Uh, 
Yeah, just as a just as sort of for me, what I found quite shocking about the Gustella article and others is that for over 50 years, the left in the United States has consistently called for cutting the military budget and funding social services. Now, as politics that question imperialism and politics that question the state and policing have become less and less important, we're seeing people come out and say, oh, don't defund the police. Will we soon be seeing similar people saying, no, we can't defund the military. We can't cut the military budget to fund social services, et cetera. Now, let me throw you some more uh, questions from, uh, there's a whole variety of questions. I'm gonna sort of uh, throw them out to you. Hold on, okay. Um, We have a question here that asks you to speak more and identify resources that address how mass incarceration has become a growing industry that drives profit and state revenues, a racialized capitalist enterprise. And this has been a big debate. There are people who have argued that there's this prison industrial complex and that part of this is attempting to create cheap labor in the prisons, a new convict labor system, which in the 19th and early 20th century fueled some plantation agriculture, particularly coal mining in the South. Others... Uh, Christian Parenti, uh, Ruth Gilmore, and others are saying, no, this is not the case. So I'm wondering if you guys would like to address this question of the prison industrial complex. Um, I guess I'll take that um, to start at least. Well, you know, again, you know, the prison industrial complex, if you look at um, people like Eric uh, Schlosser, who wrote about it back in like 98, says it's more than just the economics, it's about the ideology that goes into building these institutions. And, you know, if we only look at um, private prisons, it's a very small sliver of the entirety of the prison institutions. But I think we have to be more robust and think about how public institutions also greatly benefit um, or excuse me, how private companies greatly benefit from public prisons um, where they use um, state uh, uh, um, inmates or people incarcerated um, for, for cheap labor. I mean, you know, just using some some quick examples, right? Uh, last year with the California uh, fires, we've seen um, examples of where there was outrage because people who are incarcerated are putting their lives on the line uh, fighting fires um, and only being paid something like a dollar a day. Here in New York, um, the uh, the state prison kind of industry is called Corecraft, and this was um, what was being criticized for making a lot of the, uh, the hand sanitizers and other kind of PPE materials for um, um, for the state. So, you know, if we think about it as more than just, you know, our are people making profit as opposed to this uh, this this ideology of the need for prisons beyond their demand? I think there is um, at least an argument to say that there is this kind of prison industrial complex. You know, one thing that, again, sticking with New York, that's been happening is um, since Cuomo has taken office, and I'm not I'm not necessarily giving Cuomo praise here, but there have been. Um, something like 13 to 15 uh, uh, prison institutions closed in the state in New York. Uh, 
And so what we've seen is debate between upstate politicians and downstate politicians, right? Upstate politicians uh, are freaking out because this uh, sometimes becomes the uh, the entire local economy that once you remove that prison, you have to think, you know, the local franchise of Subway is probably going to dry up. The local dry cleaner where all the COs take their uniforms also is going to close up shop. Whereas downstate politicians are happy about this. This is all about the decarceration that, you know, New York and, and other states like New Jersey have been priding themselves of leading the pack about, uh, on. But we are seeing this debate um, uh, within, with, within, within government. So, I mean, one could say, well, why is there a debate? Shouldn't all politicians be happy that the, that the prisons are going away uh, if there isn't an, an economic incentive there? And I'll stop there. Pete, you have anything to add? I'm going to defer to Calvin on that one. That's his area of expertise. Yeah. Okay. Um, sorry, I'm, I'm trying to keep this up. Okay. Um, I have a couple of data questions that have come in from people on uh, YouTube. The first is, are drug and arrests enhanced at sentencing by firearms possession? Are those counted as drug crimes or violent crimes? This is a sort of data question. It, it, it really depends on, on how it's, it's put in. You know, a lot of times what we've been seeing is that um, sometimes um, crimes, the, the, the charge will be lessened if someone takes a plea. So you'll have times where someone might take a lesser charge for a lesser sentence, but that keeps conviction rates high because that's kind of what um, the entirety of like the criminal justice system is trying to do is it's trying to you know, pass convictability through. Um, this is purely anecdotal, but I remember uh, a cop telling me once that if they if they were to catch someone with drugs, but they can uh, get them a gun, they'll drop the, the the drug charge for the gun charge in New York. This was a New York cop telling me this. Um, I don't have any data to back up that that claim, but again, I do know that oftentimes. Um, uh, charges will be lessened if you take a plea deal. So it depends on, on on what you're doing. I mean, a lot of times we often, you know, one thing that 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 becomes the kind of poster child narrative is we love to hear the stories about you know the grandmother who had a vial of crack and got a thousand years. And while that is true that that happens and it's very unfortunate, that's also not the the reality either. I mean, the drug drug trade um, has an element of violence to it. Um, so, you know, having a gun, having some kind of weapon and engaging in some type of um, um, assault is not, it's, you know, par for the course um, in this, in this, uh, in this field. And it's unfortunate. And so, you know, that's where we also get people who've advocated for not only decriminalizing drugs, but also legalizing drugs, as we've seen now, I believe in Oregon or Washington in this last election, right? And what might that do in terms of overall numbers of who's going to prison versus um, who might be um, getting, um, you know, treatment or other type of um, social services that are needed? Yeah, I, I believe in the, the data that uh, Clegg and Islamic present uh, for 2019, to, you know, prisoner proportion data, who's in for what crime, right? The 21% that they 
quote as drug crimes are partially mixed in with, with some mixed, uh, uh, partially violent crimes. So they, they say it's an even smaller proportion. That's the, the non, 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 the sort of totally nonviolent, whatever, uh, the grandma with the violent crack type scenarios. Um, that's, I believe in their, in the data that they said about 5% and then 17% are out of the total of the whole hundred percent are, uh, uh, property crimes and the remainder are purely violent crimes without drug, uh, uh violations mixed in. Um, so that's that's what we're presented with by them. And then Rothwell study, which I encourage folks to, to take, you know, we, we provide a citation to it. it's pretty easy to find on the Internet, um, you know, looks at a much longer time frame from 93 to 2009. Um, and there he also uses a similar disaggregation uh, uh, technique in terms of what crimes count for what imprisonment context. But it's important to look at the flow there. Right. In terms of people going into and out of prison, because prison imprisonment is a process. Right. It's not just a one time process. Um, fact, right? So we just measure um, statically. Okay. And a follow-up question, then we have some other more substantive ones is a big part of your argument was comparing levels of incarceration, crime, et cetera, across countries. How compatible is the data for both incidents of crime, types of crime, incarceration, et cetera, across even the so-called industrialized capitalist countries. Yeah, I can I can sort of feel the first part of that. Uh, Calvin probably knows more than me in the details. So we do cite um, data from the World Prison Brief, um, you know, uh, that compares just in general incarceration rates across countries, across the entire world. You have almost, almost every country in the world. North Korea is missing. A few other countries are missing because they don't have reliable data on it. They don't have any data on it. Um, but the vast majority of countries in the world, developed or not not so developed, um, are, are are in there. So what we're not presenting, we're not presenting any any understanding of the different crimes as coded in different countries, right? Like drug crimes in Germany versus drug crimes in Japan versus here. It's like we're we're not presenting anything of that nature. These are just overall. Uh, you know, raw numbers and then proportions of the population that are behind bars, right, in some form. And there's, of course, there's asterisks and caveats uh, with the Chinese data, um, even in that, in the World Prison Brief. So they estimate their, China's rate in 2018 was about 163 people per 100,000, but there's an asterisk next to that. If you include political prisoners, it goes up to like 180 something. Um, So there are, you know, I encourage folks to sort of consult that uh, on their own, but um, so these are just general uh, uh, you know, tr- international numbers or, or internationally comparative numbers um, of who's behind bars uh, at a given time, not what they're there for. Right. So it's easier to measure and compare that who's locked up versus who's not, not measuring different, different convictions. Yeah. And I guess I'll just follow up by saying, you know, it's, it's, the United States is somewhat unique in this, right. You know, a lot of the other countries that, we try, we try to compare ourselves to um, or uh, more homogeneous, uh, much smaller in scale, uh, a different kind of history in terms of its, um, its own racial histories. Um, so, you know, a lot of times we, we try to say, well, you know, the, Scandi- the Scandinavian countries are doing it right. Um, but, you know, we also see that, you know, some of the, uh, the kind of American prison culture has been outsourced to other countries as well. Um, so we'll have to see, you know, what, what that means for, for future um, comparisons. Um, and, yeah, so I'll, I'll just say that. I think Pete did a good job kind of saying what we're looking at. Okay, a couple more questions. The sort of integrated theory and ex- historical expl- analysis 
in terms of the growth of the car of incar mass incarceration starting in the 70s and 80s would have to also talk about the fact that the period between 1965 and 1975 saw a very, very sharp uptick in working class struggles of strike activity. Yep. Much of it uh, sparked by, inspired by, and led by workers of color, particularly black workers in some of what would soon be the older plant, well, plants that would soon close. So if you could talk a bit about how you would bring that in to the analysis of the sort of repressive response to the unrest of the 60s and 70s, which was not simply the mass explosion, the insurrect, the sort of semi-insurrections in the in the urban centers, mass protest movements around housing and other aspects of social reproduction, but also a struggle at the point of production. I can dive into that. Yeah. I mean, so Calvin does a great job um, in really sort of documenting and showing us, um, you know, how the, car, the, 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 the political response um, by the FBI and other agencies um, to um, the Black Power Movement, to the Panthers um, of the 60s, um, and also to just the urban rebellions more generally, um, were extremely punitive and sort of actually started to, uh, uh, you know, inculcate the idea or ex experimentations in uh, locking up large numbers of people as a response to the to sort of more militant mass movements, but I think there's a there's obviously a much bigger question that you're posing there, Charlie, which or the the author of the question is posing, and I, I think it's that's great, right? There was a massive rank and file rebellion um, of workers in the late '60s and early '70s. There was the beginnings of what many people saw as a second major upheaval that that you know might rival the '30s in terms of a sort of renewal of labor as a as a militant social movement. Um, that fought on a very broad class basis rather than just narrowly within its industries and within the confines of collective bargaining as it had been created and constructed in, over, the, over the course of the Second World War and thereafter. Um, and um, for a number of reasons, I mean, we don't have time to go into all the reasons why that unfortunately fizzled, why that, why that bottom-up surge um, in uh, manufacturing primarily didn't um, sort of generalize out and take a sort of more political expression that could have demanded, um, that could pose the redistributive options on a sort of big scale, right? Um, uh, socialist questions, questions of socialist trans transformation or even, you know, transformational reforms that would point in that direction. Um, why those didn't come to pass um, is a much bigger conversation. There's, you know, a mountain of literature that, that looks at that. Um, and, you know, here's here's one place where I'll give yeah, – I don't think they do nearly enough justice in trying to spell it out. But Clayton's money at least sort of indirectly point to the fact that, okay, the working class was weak in the 1970s, right, um, or relatively weak, right, um, and therefore couldn't effectively demand this alternative response to crime and economic crisis, alternative to the carceral response. Um, so – but why was the working class weak, right? Why did that – brought that upheaval um, uh, fizzle and not take a more general redistributive form. Why did neoliberalism as we now know it come to pass? Um, and I think we, we sort of centrally, you know, there's many explanations for that, but I think race is a central one of them and race, uh, racial division is being used and exploited um, by employers, by politicians, by various uh, uh, sort of ideological centerpieces. And there's, you know, a non-negligible amount of sort of, latent racism within uh, uh, sectors of the, the 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 white working class, right? It's not the dominant thing. It's not, we're not going to cast everybody in that light, right? Um, but it's there and it can be exacerbated and brought out by, um, you know, cynical uh, uh, politicians and employers and other, um, you know, sort of thought leaders. And it was in the 1970s, right? So racial divisions themselves, I think, played a very big role 
not a determinative rule. It's not, I'm not saying it had to turn out that way, right? Um, but it did turn out in such a way um, that racial divisions played a role in weakening the working class. So if you just want to point to working class weaknesses, they do, you then have to sort of uncover the reasons. Well, why? Why was the working class weak? Why did it not succeed in these uh, um, um, in these directions? Um, and I think racial divisions and their sort of deliberate exploitation by, by various agents um, uh, go a long way towards explaining. Uh, Including the the leadership of most of the industrial unions, right. who also played that card, as did Ruth, particularly Ruth or his successors in the UAW. Yeah. And then I guess I'll just add, you know, I think what's, what's, um, what's important to recognize is that, you know, as we're, as we're talking about the leadership, a lot of that leadership was assassinated, was jailed. I mean, you know, I, I mentioned in my, in my talk about, you know, Fred Hampton. I mean, you know, the Black Panthers were were really um, keenly aware of, of 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 class struggle and were marrying class struggle to um, racial politics of the day. And I, you know, and, and you know, um, that really seems to be the driving force of why and how someone like a Fred Hampton became such a major target by. Uh, the federal government, the fact that he was organizing, you know, street gangs, uh, white working class, uh, Latinx communities, um, he really became the larger threat, even more so than um, even uh, national party leadership at one point, because they did not want to see what someone like a Fred Hampton, who was seeing that race and class are married in this way, um, organize. So, you know, I think that also becomes a um, uh, an important factor to, to not leave out that there was a, a class consciousness within, you know, um, black, black leadership in that time, you know, uh, even Martin Luther King, right? Martin Luther King really fell out of favor in that last year of his life because he really was much more um, vocal around working class uh, rights, anti-war, um, you know, he had much more support when it was just about um, civil rights and little black children and white children holding hands. And it was much more optimistic and um, really relieved the burden of white supremacy, right? But once you start to add these other factors in, um, you know, it, it, it becomes a different, a different scenario. Okay. Lee, I have two more questions. I don't know. We'll get to both of them. And the... How do we? How do you guys explain the increasing discussion, which you referenced before, towards quote de-incarceration? Even Trump rhetorically talked about how bad the drug laws were, how we have to move away from imprisoning people, etc. You have, you know, moves towards abolishing or limiting cash bail. You're you're seeing the closing of prisons, which, whether they're profitable or not, are a major source of employment in some deindustrialized communities upstate, et cetera. And this is a national trend. How do we explain that, given what the forces were that drove mass incarceration? Those don't seem to be disappearing. Growth of the reserve army of labor and the surplus populations, continued attacks on working class people, and the desire to contain and repress challenges from below. How do we explain that in this con in the last couple of years, this at least rhetorical moves towards de-incarceration? So, um, 
you know, the first part, you said Donald Trump, you know, it's funny, like he was saying that, but then at the same time giving speeches about how we should give the death penalty to, to drug users and drug, drug, drug distri- distributors. So, you know, he was talking out of both sides of his mouth, you know, and all that nonsense. But, you know, I think the, the, the decarceration movement is growing, you know, I, I, I really do put a lot of emphasis on this book by of, of Michelle Alexander that, you know, as I said, you know, she got a lot of people talking. Um, but we're also in this time period, too, where in 2010, it was the first time since the Bureau of Justice Statistics um, uh, was keeping keeping track that more people were released from prison than went into prison in that year, starting in 1977. So we're also seeing this boom of anywhere between 600 to 700,000 people annually coming out of um, the prison system. (laughs) You know, one thing that America did, and I say this in in quotes, a really good thing at was uh, putting people in prison. What we've done an abysmal job in doing is how do we reintegrate them back into society? And we've not created a safety net. We've not created a system that gives people the tools to succeed the moment that they are released. And that has, you know, that's a lot of other things. I think what we have to be really careful in in this moment of de-incarceration is not moving to what, uh, again, Michelle Alexander and others have talked about as an e-incarceration. Right. Where we can do almost the exact same thing to people without the kind of physical prison walls. But we've seen the growth and use of technology, everything from ankle monitors to uh, facial recognition software to GPS locations where, um, yes, we're, we're, we're um, not maybe putting as many people into the physical walls of prison. And that might cut down on a whole host of certain traumas and, and experience that people have. But we're still limiting people's capacity to be um, part of society. So we have to be really careful that we're not um, taking money away from the physical buildings and then just you know shifting or reallocating that money into uh, holding people in um, these kind of really futuristic, dystopic ways that we're seeing grow. I think um, Chicago was uh, beta testing these ankle monitors that had this like two-way walkie-talkie on it so that if um, someone on parole was not where they were supposed to be or what have you, the parole officer could literally um, speak to them through this ankle monitor. So, you know, imagine being on a date and on a a job interview, uh, you know, an interview for an apartment and all of a sudden someone starts talking. I mean, just think about the, the embarrassment, the social stigma that comes with that. So we have to be really careful that we don't go down this other road. Um, um, And so I'll say, I'll stop there. Yeah, just just to add on to that, I mean, Calvin really covered it pretty solidly. Um, I would just say that, and I think it was sometime in 2013 and 2014, Michelle Alexander herself actually had an op-ed about exactly this question, about why is it that now some conservatives and, you know, there's a bipartisanship saying we want to, um, you know, uh, wind down the prison system. Newt Gingrich, I think, was involved. This is all pre-Trump. and, you know, I think from the sort of Republican side and even from many of the Democrats side, um, it's it's uh, it is become a huge expenditure um, uh, of state revenue. Right. So that, you know, there, there's a certain sort of narrow cost consciousness there. Like, wait, wait a minute. This is becoming an ever bigger part of the, you know, of budgets like how, you know, and then, you know, the one be fiscally conscious and minded and so on and so forth and uh, and not do that. But I don't think we're I don't think we're out of the wood. I mean, I don't think this is just going to gradually 
you know, go away. And so we're going to go back to sort of normal incarceration levels, whatever those were. Um, I think there's bigger dangers and upheavals on the political foreseeable political future. Right. Um, and I think, unfortunately, as, as many of the sort of more nasty things that Trump or his administration initiated during that tenure, um, there was clear precedence um, in the previous administrations right, that had been set up in terms of ICE itself, uh, in terms of uh, uh, you know immigrant detentions um, and so on and so forth. And those are just sort of utilized and, and, and weaponized even more so uh, uh, under Trump and, and possibly under future uh, um, right-wing uh, movements or, or governments. So I think we need to be, I think we need to keep the pressure on. I think we need to, to keep building movements to, to end incarceration, uh, um, to, to defund the police, um, uh, and also more broadly to fight against the kind of reactionary forces that are rearing their heads and unfortunately getting organized um, in this ongoing period of crisis that we're facing. Yeah, and I'll just say just very quickly, like, and and that's why we have to be imperative around a prison abolitionist stance and not a criminal ju- justice reform effort, because the reform just kind of moves us into another kind of hole where we have to kind of climb our way out of. An abolitionist stance really wants to take a transformative and restorative um, paradigm towards um, criminality, uh, rehabilitation, and all of these other um, issues that we're here discussing now. Okay, great. Thank you both. This was really an excellent discussion. I want to apologize to all the folks who raised questions that we couldn't get to. Uh, Time was limited. Uh, Again, I want to thank Pete Eichler and Calvin John Smiley for both their amazing article in the second issue of Spectre for today's webinar. And I want to thank everyone who came and again, remind people, Spectre and no and any other left publication cannot survive without your financial support. Subscribing, to be honest, is just not going to keep us going. So between now and International Women's Day on March 8th, please show Spectre some love. Give us as much money as you possibly can so we can keep producing this journal at least twice a year, do more webinars like this, and help promote the sort of theoretical, historical discussion that's going to be necessary for political clarity on the new socialist left in the U.S. today. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.